Today's guest on the Kino Yoga Podcast is Krishna Das, one of our most well-known guests to date. Everyone knows him as the chanting guy, but actually the chanting is kind of a sideline to his devotion to Neem Karoli Baba, Maharaji, the legendary spiritual teacher he met through Ram Das in the late 60s. So having spent three years with Maharaji on his first trip over to India, his life was really changed for good. Indeed, it was here with Maharaji that he found his love for chanting in Bhakti Yoga. But when Maharaji sent him back to the US, saying he had attachments there after three years, ensuing dark night of the soul happened for, for many years afterwards. And despite his intentions to shortly return to Maharaji, Maharaji unfortunately left his body. So then Krishna Das really spends almost 20 years searching, searching for a path. And indeed, it wasn't until 1994 that he found that path with David Life and Sharon Gannon, and they invited him to chant before their question and answer session at the Jivan Mukti Center in downtown New York. So he spent roughly 20 minutes weekly chanting and gradually this picked up. More and more people came, the time increased and it became a phenomenon. And really, very shortly afterwards, the CD was produced and that exploded. It was played in every yoga center, if you, if you can remember, in the 90s and still as popular today. So the chanting exploded and Krishna Das, however, remains incredibly, incredibly humble about it and attributed everything to the grace of Maharaji. And you can see this in his performance. It is in no way a performance, rather. You can see it's a meditation. So if you haven't yet read his book, Chance for a, Chance for a Lifetime, Chance of a Lifetime, Chance for a Lifetime, then read the book. It's his autobiography. It's a fantastic book. And we, research, we refer to it a lot in this podcast. And also, if you haven't done yet, Subscribe to the YouTube channel, comment if you fancy, and feel free to donate via the website if you've enjoyed the podcast or the YouTube. And you could also donate now via via my Instagram in Buy Me a Coffee. So I really hope you enjoyed it and welcome Krishna. Okay, so welcome. Krishna Das to the Kiran Yoga Podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks for coming on. I'm in the I'm in the south of France now. Yeah. <laughs> By default. Okay, so let's let's crack on with it. I mean, I'm going to have to ask you the two things, I suppose. I, I never know where to begin. The two things I, would, I this time I thought to begin. Did what are your early spiritual experiences? Were you always in, interested in the spiritual and I read your book and I loved the the book actually your your book um, but I never really found out what musical background you had like did you you know I'm not sure where you put it in there or whether I just glossed over it you know where you you know I know you studied something different at university but did you always have a musical background so I suppose it'd be my two opening questions to the primary right. um, <clears throat> I don't I wouldn't say that I was always interested in spiritual things not at all you know. Um, Growing up where I did in that time, there wasn't really anything spiritual going on as far as I know. Uh, I really was never interested in any kind of organized religion. So, uh, But to tell the truth, when I, in uh, between, between my junior and senior year of high school, I took peyote with a friend. As I was 17 years old, and that experience 
uh, was so deep that it, it 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 was like the tree got cut about halfway through at that point, you know. But because the media, my immediate experience was that what I was now experiencing was so much more real than anything else in my life that I'd ever been in touch with. And I had no doubt that what I was experiencing and seeing and feeling was more real, was just, I don't know how else to say it. And everything else looked like a dream. My life, my regular life, just seemed to be like some kind of shallow, shallow dream that that had that just didn't have any juice to it hmm. any essence well, of course then you know then that, that experience was over and i had to go my senior year in high school you just did it once it wasn't a lot of fun you just did it once if you'd had that experience we didn't do it, it loads just, of times well i did it once right. at that point sure just once i mean a, a friend of mine had brought the buttons the peyote cactus back from the, the southwest so there was only a few buttons when we 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 did them done actually wait wait i did it once once or twice probably yeah at that time so then i started getting interested in things and um somehow or other i found a book on buddhism and i remember opening up and it said according to the buddha your enlightenment is up to you and I went, what? There's something in the world that's up to me? You know, when you're 17, everybody tells you what to do. Nothing's up to you. Whoa. And so I got really interested in that. And then also, someone gave me the Gospel of Ramakrishna. Yeah. Which was just, I could not believe mm. what I was reading. Like, there are beings like this? Wow. You know? talking to God, having visions and ecstasy and bliss and, you know, whoa, I want that, you know. <laughs> did you read the Carla, did you read the Carlos Castaneda books as well? Because they, they kind of would have gone with the peyote, wouldn't they? Much later, much later. That, that's, I'm already, I'm already 90 years old by Carlos Castaneda at that, you know. <laughs> Oh, they, did they come later, did they? <laughs> I thought that. Much yeah. I'm 74. Jesus. We're talking, this was in 1965. I thought they were in the 60s. You know, I found them on my dad's bookcase, and that was my first foray into spirituality. Um, I, I don't know what the date well, are. You might be right, right. early 70s. Yeah. yeah, maybe 70s. I didn't hear about them until after I came back from India. So, uh, and I think I read one or two of those books, you know, after I came back. And what about the musicality? Music was always in my life. My father played piano and listened to music all the time. My mother used to sing to me when I was young. Uh, I discovered the blues as a teenager. Mm, that you put in the book. I, I, yeah. I was in the record store. The, you know, we used to have to go to a store to get music <laughs> no <way>. and buy <laughs> these big things called records. <laughs> And then put them on a thing, and they go around and around. There's a needle. Wow, how 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 quaint! And they get scratched. But I was I was rummaging through the bins, and I saw this. I think I was into folk music at the time. That was a big thing at the time. So I found this uh, record album called Folk Blues Song Fest, 
and had the pictures of about three or four different musicians on the cover. So I took it home and I was expecting, you know, folk music. Well, I got folk music, real folk music. I mean, it was Mississippi Delta Blues. And I just could not believe the the power mm. and the depth and the 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 juice in those in that music and that was it that became a blues freak from that time on and then you know i i started playing guitar and playing with people um uh and you taught yourself did you uh mostly but then i took some lessons a little later on when i was really stuck you know i couldn't figure out things so i took i had a friend who who had a band called the Rancid Yaks. Oh, that's a great name. Yeah. And uh, he used to, he was this crazy guy. He was the only guy in the high, in my high school who uh, rode a motorcycle. He had a big old Triumph Bonneville and we used to ride around together. And uh, I think he was smoking dope before I even knew what it was. So we got to be friendly and he taught me some stuff. And so you don't read, you don't read music. You're not classically trained in, in any which ways, right? No, right? I, I, I can hardly read English. You know. <laughs> right. So, how do you take it from there? Tell me a little bit about the um, the Ramdas Ramdas uh, experience that you. I think he led you to Maharaji, didn't he? Um, yeah, definitely. Not only did he lead me to Maharaji, but uh, what I experienced when I met Ramdas actually turned out to be Maharaji himself. That's what I was feeling. It was coming through yeah, Ramdas yeah. And that and such. Yeah intense extraordinary uh power at that point he had just come back from india from his first trip and he was just radiating it was so beautiful everybody who came just was it was like coming out in the sun after like the winter time you know it was just so beautiful you know like a a real summer not the english <laughs> summer yeah <laughs> so uh but yeah no so I had heard about him from some friends and they went to see him and I wasn't interested. You know, I, I just thought, I'm, what do I, I don't care about American yogis, you know, I want the real thing. So they left, I was living on their land and, uh, upstate New York and yeah. they went off to meet Ram Dass and, um, they were supposed to come back the next day and they didn't come back for like two or three days. Yeah. Uh, and I had, so I was standing in the driveway. I had just come out of the, the goat shed. We had two goats on the farm. Uh, Madame Blavatsky and Alice Bailey were our two goats. And uh, I had just milked the goats and I came out and the car came in down the driveway, this long driveway cutting through a field. And my friend gets out of the car and he turns around and he looks at me <laughs> and he had this look on his face. That, and light was shooting out of him. I mean, uh, I couldn't believe it. I went right down the directions. <laughs> I'm leaving now. And I ran out to my place. I got my stuff. What were you doing at that? Apart from milking the theosophist goats, what were you doing with yourself at that at time? At that time, yeah. I, was, uh, I was driving a school bus for the local. And, you know, I was just sitting in my cabin depressed and unhappy. That's what I was doing. So you just did... You had a day off the driving school bus, or someone has subbed, subbed for you, and you went down there. To, you drove the school bus with the kids down to see Ram Dass. No, yeah, yeah, with yeah, the kids, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That would be good. Yeah. yeah. And they never came back. I don't know what happened to them. 
or you went to, and you went to Ramdas and uh, and you drove all night, I believe, you know, and in the cold and in um, in the storm and a blizzard or something. Yeah. And and uh, how was it reading him? Well, you know, so you, what was the experience? Of I walked Ramdass? in the room where he was sitting. I walked in the room where he was sitting, and uh, at that moment, without a word being spoken. He was actually sitting with his eyes closed in the other corner of the room. I walked in the room and immediately, absolutely immediately, I knew I had this epiphany and I knew that whatever it was I was looking for was real. It existed. It was in the world and you could find it. And that changed my life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because before that, it's like this. Yeah, I could really resonate with that because you got to read the books, you got to want to believe it. You know, it's like yeah, I'd like to believe that Ramakrishna's books are true, right? Like, but it's so yeah. outside one's own field of conventional normative perception, right? Like, you know, growing up as we you did or where I did, you know, where there was no spirituality around, really. You know, and, and no one, no one who had had experiences you could talk to you about, certainly. You're right. That's true. Yeah. Right. So that, that was, that was so, but you see at the time I thought it was Ramdas himself, you know, but you know, that's what, there he was and this is what I was feeling. So I wound up becoming close to him and hanging out with him as much as I could. And, and I realized gradually it was a painful time too, because he, he was at the same time he was radiating Maharaji. He was also um, he, he was having his own issues about life, let's just say. And so there was this, it would be great and then he would get angry or something hmm. or, or he would be open and sweet and loving and then he would shut down and be critical of you and nasty. Hmm. So there was this strange thing going on. So gradually I realized that, wait a minute, you know, it's coming through him. It, it's, he showed us a picture of Maharaji, a little black and white picture. Mm. That's all I saw. Mm. So, but I realized as time went on that it's coming through him and that it's Maharaji coming through him. And then I decided I had to go to India to meet the Guru. And at first, I mean, I think your destiny like, hung on a thread, right? Because you, you didn't get the address. He wasn't allowed to give you the address for, I mean, the, the Maharaji, we took him, that Maharaji, we took him, Neem Karoli Baba. That's yeah. He wasn't even supposed to be talking about yeah. his instructions. When Maharaj said, "Don't talk about me," but he couldn't help himself. You know, he he had this jewel, and he he his natural inclination was to share Absolutely. it with people. Yeah, yeah. So, and in the end, one way is another. You have to read the book, everyone. But you found you found uh, Maharaji, and you spent years there, right? A few years there. To, it, he he let me stay two and a half yeah, years. Yeah. He, he literally he he got my visa extended. Otherwise, I would have been sent home after a year and a half, or even more. Uh, but anyway, he got my visa extended and let me stay. And then, a couple of months before the visa was up, he looked at me and he said, "You go back to America. You have attachment there. You have to go." <sighs> you must have been devastated. I just said. <laughs> What you know? What I had no idea what he was. What do you mean? I had attachment there. I left everything. I gave my jeans away. I sold my car. <laughs> I sold my guitar. Yeah. 
I had maybe one little cardboard box in my mother's basement of, I don't even know what. I had no intention of ever going back to America when I left America. When I went to India, I, in my heart, I didn't say that to my parents. But Was it always the experience when you were there? Did you, from the moment go, when you met him and you were in India, did you have doubts or was it, or when you were there, it's just like, yes, I'm never going back, happy, completely. Oh, yeah. No, I was completely at home in India. I absolutely at home. I loved it. I felt, in fact, when my, in those days, you know, it, the plane landed, then you had to walk on the runway to the, to the building, you know? So I remember getting out of the plane and my foot hit the ground and I went, I'm home. And I realized I never had that feeling in my life before. It was, whoa. And it was just like, that's the way it was for me in India. I was at ease everywhere. Uh, I really, uh, still, except now I'm old and cranky, but, but aside from that, uh, I still, India, you know, is my home. When was that? What year? And where was the ashram exactly? Well, Maharaji's temples are in the, up in the north uh, of India. You, most of them are in UP, Uttar Pradesh or Uttaranchal, which is the state kind of north and northeast of Delhi, uh, around Delhi and northeast of Delhi. Um, that was 1970. I think we arrived, I think I arrived August 1970 in Mumbai. And oh, yeah. we had met Baba Muktananda on the way to... Uh, India, we had stopped in England. In those days, you, you could find these really cheap flights, but it was one step at a time. So we got to England, and then we found another cheap flight, but it wasn't for a week, so we were just hanging around. And uh, Muktananda was on his way to the US for the first time, and we met, he was in London. So we met him there, uh, me and my friends, we met him there, and um, he said, he was very sweet to us. He said, when we walked in the room, he looked, he said, these boys aren't English. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, I don't know what he meant, but anyhow, so. Uh, we probably got better teeth. Probably, yeah. What's that? Probably got better teeth, I'd say. He looked a bit healthier yeah. probably at the time. Better teeth, you know, just better, better physicality. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and then when you were with Maharaji, when you, when you first met him, what was the experience like and what was it i mean you know obviously the book tries to convey what it can but what what was it like i mean your your the feeling of being in his presence i think was so profound that you just wanted that everyone wanted just to be in his presence all the time right and half the time you weren't allowed to be right you were sitting kind of over the ways and way waiting to be called up to sit with him right what why did you i mean like for normal people normal in inverted comment what you know what was it about sitting with some Indian older guy that was so you know that was so special, right? If you could try and elaborate, on that. if you could, if you could in in your imagination, uh, imagine what it would feel like when you really felt exactly how you really want to feel, you know, whatever that is, the feeling of being home, of being happy, being loved, being free, that's what it was like sitting with him. It was, and it was beyond that also. I mean, he, 
he led us into the room where love lives. And it was all free. There was no manipulation. Nothing was required. You didn't have to clean the temple. You didn't have to wash toilets. You didn't have, all you had to do was breathe and live. You, you, nothing was required of you. You were loved as you are. You were accepted as you are. There was no trying to change anybody. He never, it was a whole different ballgame than what most people consider mm. the guru. Spiritual yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, and he didn't speak English though, did he? He spoke whatever he wanted to oh, speak, really? but it, it appeared he yeah. it, it, apparently he did. It appeared he didn't speak English. But there's stories of him sitting under a tree with two German guys for like two hours talking, and they didn't speak Hindi, and he didn't supposedly speak German. So he was speaking German to them. I mean, and when like when the translator would be translating a question to him, he would be correcting it. We ask question. <laughs> I would be telling the translator the question. I'd finish talking, and then Maharaji would answer the question without the translator right. saying anything. It, that happened all the time. And he, he, he was overflowing with with miracles and joy and happiness and and depth of being. I mean, we there was total trust. Also which is such a rare thing in relationships with people. There was no question. This guy knew everything. He was the king of the universe. He was totally taking charge of everything. You had nothing to worry about. It, it, was, an, it was that kind of experience. Mm. And it's remained that for 50 years, mm. by the way. I mean, uh, that never changed for me. And for most of the the close, the the first group, or for anybody who considers himself uh, this this devotee of Maharaji, it's it. Your life is not your problem. You know, it's his. Mm. <laughs> but it didn't. I mean, you didn't just get there and everything was okay. Though I mean, I, you know, after you came, I mean, you spent a lot of the, the uh, life. I, right? almost, I was that. a drug addict. I almost died a minute. You know, but th that's. That was just karma's working out, you know, karma's coming to fruition that this this is what he meant, by the way, when he said, you have attachment, you have to go back there. Everything that's happened to me since that moment until this moment is exactly what he was talking about. And this was all in me. There was no avoiding it by staying in mm -hmm. India. I was already walking around like a robot. I was so charged. And so intense, there nothing could pass through anymore. Everything was there was so much juice because of the the conduit was tiny because I was so egoistically programmed, you know. So I had to get through that. That stuff had to come out, and and every time I fell off the cliff, he just moved the cliff. And instead of falling 10,000 feet, I just fell on my face. <laughs> but you spent most of your years like away from him, right? I mean, you left after a couple of years and you never did. did you, go, you went back again and saw him again, didn't you? Then you, you had to stay. No. No, that was. No, he asked me to come. He wrote to me. He had someone write to me and ask me to come back. But I was getting laid for the first time in three years. So I, I tried to delay it. <laughs> 
and and as a result of that he had went when i was ready to go back he had already left the body do you think he actually did as an aside in that part of the book do you think he actually did die because you know remember the other book that someone showed you and said like well he's actually people have said he's living up the like up the road in a cave or do you, do you think he's he just he just did a houdini just escapes you. Lot. You know, he used to he used to say to us, he used to look at us and tease us. He used to say, "Say, I have the keys to the mind. I could turn your minds against me." And he would laugh, and we would say, "Baba, don't do that." And he would laugh. Ah. He would, but he has the keys to the mind. Nothing can arise in your mind that he doesn't want to arise. So he could be living next door, right here in New York, and I would never know unless he wants me to know. He's in truck. He's the one running the show. So you ask me, is he alive? Of course he's alive. Those beings, beings like that don't die. Is he in a physical body? My particular feeling is that he is in a physical body. That's what body. I meant, I suppose, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I used to run around India trying yeah. to find him. Yeah. And But I finally had to give up because I recognized I didn't find him in the first place. Did I? Did I go to find him? I happened heard about this guy Ramdas. I went to see him, and all this happened. He was pulling the strings, not me. Mm. And when I say he, I don't mean like there's some little guy in there actually thinking, "Okay, I'm going to pull this string." It's just that he is completely merged with the universe, and whatever has to happen happens through him perfectly. There's no resistance. There's no agenda there's no personal anything anymore so everything that has to happen happens perfectly and in fact as in fact you know the story of when i first went i wrote ramdas said to me okay he said you know i can't tell you where he is and i said that's okay i'll find him in retrospect i was dreaming <laughs> right but so ramdas said wait a minute wait wait, wait. why don't you write to my friend kk who lives there and and see what happens. So I wrote to KK, got a letter back saying, wonderful to hear from you, but Maharaji's not in the hills at this time at his temple in Kenchi. Ah, we have a name. <laughs> uh, but when he returns, I'll take your letter to him. So in the meantime, two other letters came from two other friends of mine. And um, so KK took the letters to the temple. He goes into the room where Maharaj is sitting with some other people. He puts the letters on the bed next to him and uh, sits down on the floor and begins to peel and cut an apple and offer Maharaji the cut pieces of this soft apple. And um, Maharaji goes on with his conversation. He notices the letters. He says, what's that? And KK says, they're letters from students of Ramdas. They want to come see you. Nay, tell them not to come. What do I have to do with this? And he goes back to his conversation. So, this, the rest of the story is very funny. But you see, KK and Ramdas were very close. Ramdas was sent home to KK's house the first time he met Maharaji. And KK was instructed, you know, be, you know help him out. So they become very close, and now Ram, KK felt he was continually he was helping Ramdas by helping us, and Maharaj was interfering with that. 
the very seva that he gave KK to do in the <laughs> first place. And since KK had grown up, since he's eight years old with Maharaji, and his relationship was like a, a, a grandkid with his grandfather, and you know, there's respect, mm. but there's no distance. It's all so he just he began to pout when, and he looked down and he stopped feeding Maharaji the apple. When Maharaji said, "Tell him not to come," so Maharaji notices it and he KK showed me. He said. He was looking down and like this, and Maharaji would, KK, what's the wrong, what's wrong? And he pushed KK's heads up, head up like this, but KK would look away. His eyes would look away. He wouldn't even look at Maharaji. Maharaji would take his hand down, and KK would go back down like this. So after a few of those, Maharaji threw his hands up. He says, okay, tell him what you want. So now, if it had been another devotee, we would have got a letter back saying, Maharaji says not to come, mm. see you later. Mm. But because it was KK, and of course, this, the big Maharaji is pulling all the strings behind, and he, that's why it was KK. Uh, KK wrote, as you know, great beings like Maharaji don't encourage the devotees to come, but their doors are always open. Uh. So if you're here, you can come Go see ahead. him. And so we didn't, I didn't know that story until about 10 years later. You know, uh, all we saw was the letter mm -hmm. saying, yeah, come. But it's, right. I mean, I've heard you tell that a number of times and it's stuck in your mind, right? Because it's just so, everything is just so kind of synchronistic and, and just like, yeah, I mean, it could have, as you said, it could have been by, in the, you know, just in a thread. It was hanging by a thread, wasn't it, really? Your, your, I mean, it, really, it's, we've got to, it seemed to see, be apparently, apparently, yeah, yeah, exactly. But we've got to talk a bit about chanting. People probably want to hear about that. I mean, I want to hear about Maharaji, really, but I could talk to you hours about him. But we'll talk a bit about chanting and in terms of Maharaji suggested you do it or did he lead you into oh, it? Chanting, right. chanting, yeah. 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 Yes, sorry, Max. Yeah, he. <laughs> well, well, we. Um, well, first of all, you know, as, as foreigners in a, in a foreign country who wanted to get closer to Maharaji, we would look at what the Indian people did, who were his mm. devotees. And we noticed that uh, they treated him as if he was Hanuman himself, the monkey god himself, that he was God himself. And Maharaji himself had, would build Hanuman temples wherever he, you know, he had quite a few, not quite a few, but maybe, I don't know, at the time, maybe five or six or seven temples around northern India. Small, simple little temple, not big, fancy things. Um, so, we, we heard about this hymn called the Hanuman Chalisa. So, I had the idea, I thought, well, you know, if we learn this, we could sing it to him, and not only will it give us a way of entering, you know, it will, it will be able to spend more mm -hmm. time with him, because that was our goal yeah, in life. Yeah. That's all we wanted to do is, sit and stare at him, you know, because you know how it is when you fall in love, mm. remember the first couple of, okay, days <laughs> when you finally, when you fall in love with somebody, yeah. you never want, you don't want to take your eyes off them. You don't want to be away from them for a second. And this was, that's what it is still after 50 years, that feeling, you don't, you know, unfortunately our karmas and our, the habits of thought and our 
our stuff takes us away and get keeps us busy in the world. So spiritual practice is the practice of coming back to that place. So we learn to chant because we wanted to be with him. And that goes, that means inside or outside. Because now where is he? You can't, we can't go sing to him in a physical body, but his presence, the presence, the love is within us. And so the chanting, and he said, he said, from going on repeating these names, everything is accomplished. But what more do you want? Mm. That's a fucking guarantee. <laughs> yeah. But do we believe it? And how much of, with how much of our hearts do we mm. actually believe that? Maybe 2% if we're lucky. But he said it, it's true. But still, how much time do we spend doing what we should be doing? Mm. Our own stuff prevents us. It's amazing. It's, it's so extraordinary. But karmas keep unfolding, and uh, I suppose most of us have the feeling that we're getting closer to that presence, to that love as time goes on. Hopefully, it's not a delusion. You never know. I know you were master of that. I think you were master of the puja master there, weren't you, for a while? Like at the, in the well, that's a funny story. <laughs> I, I was, but not not in the real, real sense. He had built a new temple to the goddess Durga in the courtyard, and uh, they were going to open the temple up for a short period of time during the Durga puja time. Uh, the celebration, the worshiping the goddess. And um, so they brought, I brought in a Brahmin priest, you know, a real pujari, they call someone to do yeah, the worship. Yeah. And after a few days, they caught him stealing the money out of the donation <laughs> box. So they sent him home and brought in a second one. Same thing happened, brought, sent him home, brought in a third one, sent him home. So then the temple trust, the guys that ran the temple, they came to Maharaj and said, Baba, we can't find a priest that won't steal. What are we going to do? Maharaj goes, my priest won't steal. Your priest? Who's that? Krishna was. <laughs> so. And he used to say, look how, han look how handsome he is sitting there in his red upi and giving out the prasad from the temple and stuff like that. But, you know, it was just his leela. He was, he was... He was doing so many things with one action. He was humbling the arrogance of the Indians, thinking that they're the only ones who can do these things. And then he was also causing the people to take the prasad from the temple, the blessed food from the temple, from the hands mm. of somebody who's not even qualified to be in the caste system in the first yeah. place. Right? Yeah. It's pretty and then, radical. of course, yeah. he was also creating something in me that would ripen over time as well so with one one fell swoop <laughs> he just you know cuts off the head of a million things a million uh, negative qualities but what i mean but I, another thing i wanted to ask you about what like what have you been doing with most of your life because it's only relatively recently that you got into the the, 
chanting, right? With the, the Jivan Mukti, with David and Sharon started the, uh, you know, the chanting again, right? Like when you went home from America, well, that, what did you do? That was 1994, you know. That, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, like that's not 30 years between, isn't it? Yeah. 21 years after Maharaji yeah, died, yes. left the body yes. or disappeared, however you want to say it. Well, <clears throat> for those 21 years, it was like the dark night of the soul, mm, basically. Mm. You know, I was, uh, I was very unhappy, really unable to do anything to help myself, pretty much. And when he left the body, you see, when I first met him, you asked about that. Mm. So the very first time I saw him physically, it was a shock because I had been feeling him everywhere in America after meeting Ramdas. Mm. I felt him all the time. He was like the air. He was like the sky, the space, everything. It was, it was always there whenever I looked. And then I walked into this room and there's this little guy wrapped up in a blanket. And I thought like, how does this work? How does the whole universe fit in that blanket? It was really a moment, a strange moment, but he he drew me in slowly, allowed me in, and uh, and when he left the body, though, really I was very emotionally attached, mm. to him. and and so I suffered terribly for many mm. years. The one day in my apartment in New York, and probably in 94, 1994, I walked from the bedroom to the living room, and once again, I was struck with an epiphany, like a thunderbolt, that if I did not chant with people, mm. it was with people, then I would never be able to clean out the dark corners and shadows in my own heart. And the understanding was just those shadows that caused the suffering. So you've been chanting all along anyway. You kept that up. No, 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 no. not really. Right. A little bit here and there. You yeah. know, I wasn't doing anything for a long time in terms of spiritual practice. Yeah. I mean, a little bit here and there. Were you running a record label or something like that? Didn't you start a record label? Um, when did we start that? <laughs> yeah, probably in the 80s. It was probably over by the 90s. Right. We started this record label probably in the late 80s or middle 80s. Mm. Yeah, you know, I love music. We would, we mm. would record all kinds of world music mm. and, and jazz. We like to give these, the old jazz guys who had kind of fallen, uh, had kind of lost the presence in the public eye. We, we wanted to give them an opportunity to, to manifest again because these were the great masters of the time i mean the uh, extraordinary mastery over their craft and and so we, we really wanted to honor that that's that was part of what we were doing mm. and how did it transpire you got into i mean you went to the studio and you asked them or i can't remember that part you asked them whether you could chart uh, there and then they guess that you can chart for like 10 minutes or something before we start the yoga and then they went away and then at the time they yeah. went away, you started chatting for an hour or something with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they went away. I, so for like quite a while, a couple of months, every Monday, I would sing for like, I guess, 15 minutes or so. And then they would do their Q&A with their student. There were only 10 people there. 
then I arrived one day and usually there were three pillows put out on, uh, in the room for me and David and Sharon. So, but this day I get there and it's just one pillow. And I said, well, where's David? Where's their pillows? And uh, the woman who ran the, the center said, oh, well, they, they left for India. Oh. So I just sang for like three hours. Every Monday I would just sing. And then after, they were gone quite a while, actually. They were gone three or four months at least, I think. <laughs> uh, a while. So I remember I, I came and they were there. I said, oh, hey, how you doing? Great, you're back. That's good. So I started singing, but I forgot they were there. And I, had, I was singing for like 45 minutes or so. And I went, oh, shit. And I looked over at them like this. And they looked at each other and went, okay. <laughs> So Mondays became my day, and I, every Monday I went and I sang. And to put, were people into people it? People started. People started showing right, up. There right. was no. We never. There was no publicity or anything. Yeah, yeah. The word just spread, and there were lines around the block. You know, the place was filling up. It was amazing. So um, that's how it all started. And then uh, we had the the record company. My time with the record company was pretty much over at that point. I had let my my partner run it i wasn't interested um then i thought well you know i need to be singing with people that's what i want to do and should be doing so why don't i make a cd of chanting so people will know what what it is it'll be like a calling card yeah, that's yeah. all you know yeah otherwise how do they know what it is mm. so we made the first cd and it went everywhere in the world so weird, isn't I, it? Yeah, yeah. This was all Maharaj's yeah, yeah, play. Yeah. It went everywhere. Every yoga studio in the world yeah, was playing, yeah, yeah. almost. Yeah, I remember. And I got invitation. I started getting invitations to come sing here and sing there, sing there. It all started. People ask me all the time. They say, you know, how do I, how do I bring my chanting to you know people? I said, how the fuck do I know? <laughs> I had nothing to do with this, you know. Be did you? Did you have to practice a lot or did you have to learn new ones or yeah, you knew you, no, I just started so you knew them all from, from back ways. Well, when I first started singing with people, I sang what I had been singing in India because yeah. we sang a lot. Yeah. Yeah. But as time went on, being in America, my, my sanskaras were like Long Island punk, not punk, but like garage band rock kind of sanskaras. So the the chants started to change <laughs> naturally. It was I wasn't thinking about it. I had no plan, but new melodies started to come to me, you know. And but they were more uh, basic to my nature yeah. as a Western. Yeah. And so the chant, it, it took, just naturally took its own shape. Because uh, I never studied Indian music. It, it's really, it's a great art. I mean, it's a fan, one of the most subtle art forms. But it's a lifetime thing, a lifetime. And I was just too busy chanting. I wasn't really interested. I wish I could have learned, but I, I didn't want to stop what I was doing to learn something. So it was kind of the way it happened. Here we are. What What do you think about when you chant, and has it developed? Have you ha, has it developed? Have you changed since you started doing it again? 
have what have you what have you experienced of it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, now it's since '94. I'm singing with people mm. pretty much, mm. and um, it's been the most transformative. Uh, opportunity or practice that that in my life um i and i i you know i see spiritual the path as a ripening process really much more than a learning process i'm not i i don't i'm not like a tibetan scholar or i i don't study all the scriptures i don't you know learn all mm. the uh, yeah I, the, I don't have I, that's not who i am I'm a devotee of Maharaji, and I want to sing to him, and I want to sing to that love. So I just sing. Uh, but the way I see it is that the chanting is like bringing your heart out into the sun of love. And the chants are like the rays of that sun ripening our hearts. And it's a natural process, because these, these chants, these mantras, these names, as they call them, they are powerful. They have potentiality. They have shakti. Mm. And they're good only for one thing. Eventually bringing you to the realization of your own soul, your own true nature. So through the repetition of the name, gradually but inevitably, that place within us is uncovered. That love within us is uncovered. And we we move more deeply into ourselves, and it's not just a personal experience like like a drug experience where well that's not even accurate so let's just say it's not just like my this is what i'm feeling i'm feeling this ecstasy mm -hmm. this is so great mm -hmm. it's not like that what it is it changes the way you see the world the way you it changes the way you experience everything and everyone, including yourself. Mm. It's a. It, it, it's like the sun rising after the dark night of the soul. All, everything looks different when the sun rises, and the higher it rises, the less shadows there are, and the more accurate things look. And that's where you feel. I mean, maybe I rephrase that question more more specifically when I say what you're thinking when you chant. Is that what you're feeling when you chant all the time? Or or sometimes do you get on stage and just think, really, I'm not up for this tonight? You know? No, you don't understand. I share the practice the same way I do it, which is you chant, and when you notice you're not paying attention, you chant. Nothing more is required. Hmm. When you notice you're thinking about something, you you let it go and you come back to the chant. People ask me all the time, mm -hmm. what do you experience? And I say, how the fuck do I know? <laughs> I let it go like, you know, 300 years ago, yeah. or I let it go, yeah, you know, yeah. when I was chanting, I, I wasn't, I didn't write it down. I don't know what I was, I just let it go and I come back to the name. Right. right. What we need to do is develop the ability to be here mm. and stay here and live in this presence, present and presence. We don't need to be taking notes on how stupid we are. <laughs> okay. We know yeah, how stupid true, we are. True. We don't need to prove it to ourselves. Very true. <laughs> okay, here's a stupid <laughs> question. Here's a stupid question. Um, yeah, yeah, right. What's your best concert and your worst concert? 
Hasn't happened yet. Come on. That, I learned that from a jazz guy. Somebody said, you know, you've been playing for 75 years. You know, what was your greatest yeah, concert? Yeah, right. Okay, and he okay. said, okay. Yeah, hasn't yeah. happened yet, you know. <laughs> They're all, uh, I, who's to judge? I have no idea. You know, sometimes I'll think, whoa, it really felt heavy right, tonight. Right, right, right. In retrospect, you know, like, and then I get like 500 emails saying this was the greatest experience of my life. So who the fuck knows? How would I know? I just forget it. I sing, I go home, I watch TV, I get up and I sing again. That's all. And it's not my business. You must have a play. You must have a playlist, right? You must can you just do the same thing every time, or do you do, you do different different bargains, different you know, pooches kind of depending on the mood. Once again, there's no plan, right? but remember, it's a deepening process. So you get, uh, there will be some basic group of chants that I might be doing more regularly for a while. And then another one will come in and one will drop out or, you know, there's, yeah, you know, or something will just come to mind. I don't really think about it, but like, just last night. Uh, was it last night? Yeah, last night. Thursday nights I sing every Thursday night for two hours or so and take some questions every Thursday night, 7 o'clock New York time. So I started singing. And, and then I just, some chant popped up in my head. So the next, that's what I did next. I didn't, you know. I'm just trusting, I guess if you have to think about it, you would just say, I'm just trusting the process. I'm not, I'm not running, I'm not driving the car. I'm just letting somebody else drive who knows how to drive. And I just, I'm just along for the ride like everybody else. So you've never like prepared your voice or done any kind of yoga well, to actually, make sure uh, that you're all limber and ready for it? <laughs> well, yeah, for, yes, definitely. And, and it's, after 10 years of singing with people, uh, my voice was, I was losing my voice. So I, I had to, I had to actually learn how to sing. I went to an opera singer who taught me how to, how to use my voice in a, in a way that wouldn't rip it up. And it's good to warm up the voice a little bit. And as far as asana practice, you know, that's what I, I do to stay alive. You know, I mean, and pranayama and asana, I look upon that as for the body. I don't really think of it as the way things are. I mean, for me, it's more of a physical well-being practice. You know, I, I don't really think of it so much as uh, quote-unquote spiritual practice. But but my my teacher Siddhimant, who was Maharaji's great disciple, she told me to do pranayam, so I do it every day. I don't do it for any special reason, you know, like to make sure I can. I I do it essentially to stay healthy, and I like to keep singing with people as long as possible. Yeah, I'm sure people people appreciate that. I want, <laughs> what's your okay? What's your finally? What, what's your feeling of spirituality? What, what does spirituality mean for you in daily life? It's becoming a good human being, you know, and 
becoming more aware of other people and and what they're going through and recognizing that it's not all about me and that my state of mind is not the most important thing in the whole fucking universe you know because if we don't think about ourselves then those thoughts don't arise anywhere mm. we're free so that's what a good human being is someone who cares about other people and tries to do whatever they can to to alleviate suffering wherever it is and we have enough of our own also to work on so um like i said the chanting changes the way you live in the world it changes the way you see yourself and others it's not just that okay this was a very blissful chanting experience wow this was really spiritual no it's not like that it gradually your subjective version of the world because everything we're looking out we're looking at a mirror when you look when we think we think we're looking out at the world but actually we're looking into a mirror and we're seeing our subjective version you know i i think I, my beard's a little long i better cut my hair you know, i better put some moisturizer <laughs> on you know that but we're seeing that out there so as you chant as you do these practices spiritual practice not just chanting of course what you see changes because it's less your version and more uh factual what's really out there you know what, what's really happening there because then you're not really even seeing well anyway your your subjective version and your attachment to me and identification with your thoughts and stories about yourself that gets the glue that holds you to that gets thinned out through practice. So you might get depressed, and instead of it lasting for a year, it lasts for two months. It's, it's, it works like that. It works under the radar. It doesn't, you can't, you can't know. Like Ramana Maharshi said, he said, asking, asking the mind to kill the mind or the ego to kill the ego, it's like asking the thief to be the policeman. Yeah, that's excellent. I love that. Yeah, there'll yeah, be a lot yeah, of yeah. there'll be a lot of investigation, <laughs> but no arrest yeah, will ever yeah, be made. Yeah. I, yeah, that was a great quote in your book. Um, but um, <laughs> finally, fine. what advice would you give for anyone on this on the on this path, or what advice would you give to a younger self of you know on the path? Right? Is there anything you would say as a parting shot, as it were? Well, I don't know. Uh, if, uh, the advice I'd give to my younger self would be, would you chill out, man? What the fuck is wrong with you? Shut up. Relax. Take it easy. Don't, don't obsess so much. You know what? You know. But, you know, for other, you know, I, I would just say, you know, go for it and don't give up. You know, because, you know, as an older person now, you start to think about leaving the body and what that's going to be like. And, you know, they say the only thing you take with you when you leave the body is your state of mind and the practice you've done. So when you're younger, you don't live in that reality. You still think you have lots of time left to do this and that. And it's a very interesting conundrum. 
So I would say live fully as go after the things you want, get the things you want, but keep your eyes open and recognize that nothing you get from the outside will ever make you happy for more than a minute. So uh, try to plant the seeds of what you really want in life. It's been a pleasure spending time in your presence, actually. Really enjoyed it. Thank and, um, you. Look, okay, okay. One, one last thing. I always ask this question. I wasn't going to ask you. I'll ask you anyway. Um, what, yeah. um, the, what about uh, the biggest um, kind of like spiritual moment and, uh, and uh, uh, inspiration, right? And uh, a guilty pleasure, something that you enjoy that's a flippant thing, that's a silly thing. Just, yeah. Uh, so I, I didn't really understand the question. So better say it again. <laughs> the biggest um, <laughs> spiritual moment, epiphany, biggest um, a moment in your spiritual path. Can you pick a moment? Oh, for me, that's really simple. In, in 1995, six months after I started chanting with people, I quit hmm. because I saw that I couldn't do it from the right place, and that. I was a hungry guy for all kinds of things, and I was going to use all this energy that was starting to come to me to feed myself. And I saw not only was that not good for me, but it wasn't, I was going to hurt other people as well. And thirdly, this is not why I started chanting, to devour other beings and devour this energy for my own personal. I, I started chanting to find Maharaji's hand again. I had let go of his hand. He had never let go of my hand, but I had let go of his, and I needed to find that. So, after six months, I saw what was happening, I saw what was going to happen, and I was horrified that I, I recognized that I, would not, I am not able to do this. So, I quit, and I went back to India, and I started badgering him, because he's already been gone. 20 years. I'm badgering him. I say, this is your problem. I'm singing to people in your name. Fix it or I don't sing. Good night. That's the deal. You know, he tortured me for three months. Not, nothing happened for three months. And then at the end of three months, just before I was having to leave and come back to America, I was in total despair because I was being prevented from doing the one and only thing that I could do to save my ass, I was being prevented from doing it by me. So how do you get around that? Everywhere you go, you are. You can't. That's what I was saying to him. It's your, I can't do this. You have to change this. Uh, it was a terrible, uh, I was really in terrible despair because what if I couldn't chant it? What if, what if I, I, I couldn't do this? I was going to be fucked up the rest of my life. <laughs> mm. And there, I, there was no out. There was nothing I could do about it. I was the problem. So uh, on that day, on June 15th, 1995, actually, which is the day of this big celebration at the temple in Kenshi where I live, he changed everything. He changed it. And he... He 
he showed me what what it all is he he changed me he 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 showed me that it had nothing to do with me even if i thought it did and even when i thought it did it didn't affect the reality of the situation which was whatever you want to call it i mean the reality of the situation is that it wasn't my ego doing this there was some other power actually transmitting when i chant but it wasn't me and so even when i thought it was me it didn't make it didn't ruin the situation and that's what freed me but saying it like that doesn't i can't there's no way i can transmit the, mm. the depth of the experience i mean it was a life-changing experience everything in my life before that was one way and everything in my right. life after right. that was another mm. way yeah you do i mean you do convey it in the book so people have to read the book to get the experience all right all right well i know i mean finally i know you've been into you were into drugs before but give me a, a more sanitary guilty pleasure that you still hold on to now something you enjoy everyday life i like to get a whole box of cookies put it put it in a big cup <laughs> pour oat milk into it mash it all up and eat it watching some serial killer video on television yeah that's it you're kidding me aren't you we never know we'll, we'll never kidding. we'll never know whether he is or isn't <laughs> i'll leave it there <laughs> okay right Thank you for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Okay, Thank Adam. You. Nice to meet you. Take good care.